Welcome back to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I am Jeremy Jones, a pediatrics resident at CHOP and this episode's producer. Today, we have two terrific guests to join us in a discussion about some key frontiers in the emergent management of children with diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA. Our host today will be Dr. Bob Belfer, an attending physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and professor of pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. This episode is particularly special, as our guests are not only national experts and prolific research partners, but also life partners, married for over 25 years. Together, they have received numerous large grants and have over 30 DKA-related publications. Our first guest, Dr. Nicole Glazer, is a professor of pediatrics in the section of endocrinology at UC Davis School of Medicine, where she holds the Dean's Endowed Professorship for Childhood Diabetes Research. She is recognized as an international expert in pediatric DKA and has led many of the key multicenter studies that guide management, including identification of risk factors for cerebral edema and the recent PCARN fluid trial. She has also been involved in the development of several national and international guidelines for DKA management in children that guide current practice. She is joined by Dr. Nathan Kupperman, a distinguished professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics and the Bo Thomas Brofeld Endowed Chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at UC Davis. He has an extensive history of impactful research, with a particular focus on DKA. He was also one of the founding investigators and founding chair of the steering committee of the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, PCARN, and remains heavily involved in its operations. He also recently completed a four-year term as chair of the executive committee of the International Pediatric Emergency Research Network. He has won numerous national awards for his pioneering work both in his own research and developing research infrastructures for pediatric emergency medicine. We are thrilled to have these two talented clinicians join us for today's episode on DKA and hope you enjoy learning from them as much as us. Thank you, Jeremy, for that introduction. And listeners, you are in for a treat today. We have a true dynamic duo, Nate and Nicole. Pretty much your your life has been spent working on one specific disease, which we're going to talk a lot about. But before we talk about that, I want to play a little sports trivia. Both of you athletes train, okay? I want to list five athletes, and I want you to tell me what they have in common. Quarterback Jay Cutler. World Series Atlanta Braves winner Adam Duvall, Yankees great Catfish Hunter, tennis great Arthur Ashe, and to come a little bit local, Philadelphia local, beloved Philadelphia Flyers hockey star Bobby Clark. All five of them have what in common? Go ahead. Maybe they all have diabetes. Yeah, that has to be. Absolutely. So all five of those played at a professional level, and all of them have diabetes. And actually, that's one of the things when I make a new diagnosis in the ER. You know, obviously, it's a devastating diagnosis. uh, But one thing I do say, you know, you could still achieve whatever dreams you want, lawyer, doctor, or professional athlete. And sometimes I'll use those as an example. Today, Nate and Nicole, we want to talk DKA. And when we talk DKA, we need to talk about cerebral edema. That seems to be the big issue. 1936, American Journal of Science, Dr. Dillon described eight patients who suffered brain herniation during the initial 24 hours of treatment for their DKA. What do we know right now? Well, we're going to learn a lot, but what do I know right now? Cerebral edema, more common in pediatrics than adults. It's still pretty rare, 
although there's a very high morbidity and mortality associated with it. Nate and Nicole, I don't know if you know, but we have two senior advisors to the podcast here at CHOP. And I, I spoke with them before uh, taping this, Dr. Fred Henredig and Dr. Steve Ludwig. I'm sure both of you know both of them. They both said during their residency in the mid-1970s, they were taught that aggressive fluids were encouraged since DKA was accompanied by severe dehydration. A few years later, in the late 1970s, articles by Dr. Stephen Duck and others said that this was bad. Pediatricians, ER doctors were actually sued for causing cerebral edema based on giving too much IV fluid. Another one of my mentors and senior advisors, Dr. Mark Jaffe, stated it was assumed that cerebral edema implied excess fluid administration. The osmotic theory was prevalent. People like saying the term idiogenic osms. I remember that term. I remember teaching that term. Endocrinologists, not you, of course, Nicole, blamed ER doctors for giving too much hypotonic fluid. Let's spend time, Nate and Nicole, discussing your research story. And it begins in San Francisco at the Fairmount Hotel. Nate, you want to tell us how it all started? Yeah, so Bob, that's you've you've actually you've done your research well. Um, so I, I'm going to just give a little bit of of that historical background of how Nicole and I got uh, in this. We do have our COVID pet dog out in the back, so hopefully she'll stay quiet. Um, <laughs> so actually, Nicole and I in the late 1990s cared for a patient, a four year old patient who presented to the emergency department already with florid cerebral edema in DKA. Not only without receiving any fluids, she had been vomiting like crazy at home, very dehydrated, and she had a herniation syndrome, survived, but with bad outcome. And we looked at each other and said, wow, we were taught, like you were taught, Bob, that fluids causes cerebral edema. And if that's the case, that certainly doesn't explain this patient. And we embarked really on a lifetime career studying this. And I just want to point out two articles in that era that you talked about, and then I'll turn it over to Nicole. But the early studies that implicated fluids or hypoosmolar hypo fluids as a causative etiology of cerebellioma, they went like this. Single case series, no controls, all these patients gathered from a variety of hospitals with with DKA with cerebral edema, and the investigator, there was about 40 in a particular sort of seminal article, about 40 cases, and the investigators looked for common themes. And the common theme that they found was that very few children who received more than four liters per meters per squared of IV fluid developed cerebral edema. So the teaching was, don't give more than four liters per meter squared. And we were taught that and what people do sometimes to this day. What is the problem with that study? There were no controls with DKA without cerebral edema. And what other factors were there besides fluid? Like how acidotic were they? How dehydrated? But they glommed on to this notion of fluid and I'm sure, Bob, you know that number, four liters per meter squared per day, which we were all taught, and everyone was scared 
to not diverge from that until one very bold individual, and it's not Nicole or myself, mm-hmm. um, but there was an article that described this in JP's in the late in the mid to late 80s, but then a letter to the editor by a pediatric intensivist from Stanford, he said something to the liking of this. To say that we know now that fluid causes cerebral edema based on single uncontrolled series is just giving fodder to the attorneys that want to hang pediatricians for the unfortunate situation when they manage a child with DKA with this unfortunate event. And that until we investigate deeper what's causing it and we do randomized trials he said, we don't know what this elephant looks like. And that's what started Nicole's and my career of investigation in this. And I'll turn it over to you, yeah. Nicole. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good summary. I think that the, the problem with those early case series is that they should have been sort of hypothesis generating moments, but they went from kind of hypothesis generating to protocol driving information, um, which you know, shouldn't have happened, but then took an awful lot of decades (laughs) until there actually were studies that investigated that question. So Nicole, the initial meeting at Fairmont Hotel with the primary investigators led to a article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2001. And you started out with a retrospective case control study. We're talking New England Journal of Medicine, guys. Okay. They don't publish that many retrospective case control studies. (laughs) Nicole, What did you find in the study that made the editors accept this paper? Well, I think the interesting thing about that paper really was that we found that factors associated with development of cerebral edema during DKA were not the factors that you would guess if you believed that osmotic, rapid osmotic decline is the thing at fault. So You know, for example, we didn't find that higher glucose levels at presentation had any association or the rapidity of decline in glucose, you know, during treatment, things that you would expect if you thought that osmotic change was a causative factor. And instead, what we found was that higher BUN levels, so suggesting greater dehydration and lower PCO2 levels, you know, so greater hyperventilation slash acidosis were the factors that were associated, which led to kind of an interesting new theory, which is that perhaps issues with cerebral perfusion um, could be more causative than osmotic changes. So, you know, patients that are supremely dehydrated and also have low PCO2 where they're hyperventilating would be predicted to have lower cerebral blood flow. And so, you know, we generated the the theory or sort of counter theory that those factors might really be the important ones and not so much osmotic change. Great. Can I add a you couple of things? Him? And I'm just going to add, uh, Bob, a couple of things to, to what Nicole said in terms of how did this retrospective study that cost a total of $10,000 of grant funding, which was the cost of flying out all of our collaborators into the Fairmont Hotel <laughs> to generate this protocol. How did that get into the New England Journal? And I think there's three big factors. It was the first study that really did compare cases and controls. And we actually had two separate groups of controls, one match control, one random control. It was big, which the only way to do that was retrospectively. And 
two other important things. We debunked this theory. Fluids, the rate of fluid, the rate of insulin was not associated in this big study. Given and granted, it was retrospective, but those were not associated. We'd all been taught the fluid theory forever. And the second thing is we found a modifiable risk factor. That is the administration of bicarbonate after adjusting for the level of acidosis and all these other factors was associated uh, with cerebral edema. So one a thing that individuals could take away, and the one thing that I think people did take away from that was not to give bicarbonate unless absolutely needed. Excellent. Okay. So the take-home points, elevated BUN, low PCO2, Nicole, signified severe disease, and bicarb, as Nate just pointed out, was not a good thing to give. So did pediatricians... ER doctors change their practice after the study? And if yes, how? Well, in, you know, in regard to the bicarbonate, I think they did. I, I think we saw that appearing as part of DKA protocols that bicarbonate should not be used except under certain very specific circumstances. So in that sense, they did. But as far as the fluid, we didn't see a lot of change there. And I think, you know, old old theories take a long time to change, especially if they've been kind of something that's been believed for a long, long time. And I think people probably also just wanted a little bit more serious data, you know, more um, specific data on the topic. Yeah. And I would add, Bob, that first of all, I always agree with Nicole because mm -hmm. we're partners, we're married to each other, and we have a, a healthy, long-lasting marriage. I will just add um, that what we did see is, again, this change in bicarbonate use, but I do not think we saw changes in fluid administration. And I think that really attests to the level of fear that had been instilled into clinicians over three decades. And people would say to us, well, I've been doing this at my center for X number of years and I haven't seen. And we hear this a lot when you are studying uncommon diseases and with uncommon outcomes at any given center, you don't see it. But then over at center Y, they've had three of them. And at center Z, they've had a couple. So people were just adhering to this belief system that had really been kind of drilled into their brains by studies. They weren't evil studies in the 80s, but they were a bit misguided because of lack of controls and not using modern epidemiological principles. It seems like from this first study, you sort of had a 10,000 foot view, Nicole and Nate, and not seeing changes in practices, I think both of you were relentless. Nicole, I want to play a little lightning round with you because over the next, I would say 10 to 15 years, both of you publish numerous studies leading to what I would call the ultimate study, which we're going to talk about after we do this. But let's talk about that intervening period. Nicole, I'll talk about the topic, the paper, and you just give me sort of a one or two liner. Nate, feel free to chime in. You did a lot of research, Nicole, with rats. What did your research with rats tell you along this pathway to refute fluids and cerebral edema? Yeah, so the rat studies were actually really interesting and very helpful to support our human work as well. So, you know, after that first New England Journal paper, we had this hypothesis that cerebral hypoperfusion might be a factor involved. And that's something that we then started to investigate in the rat lab in a certain way. We did find in the rats that a lot of the characteristics of cerebral 
injury during DKA look an awful lot like what happens in stroke, for example. So rats with DKA initially have cell swelling before they're treated, but during treatment for DKA, when we treat them with insulin and saline, they actually develop vasogenic edema. So, you know, swelling with fluid outside of the brain cells, which is the opposite of what you'd expect if brain cell swelling were related to osmotic changes. And it looks a lot like what happens in a rat model of stroke, where you have cellular edema initially, and then vasogenic edema later on. So that was sort of interesting. And then, you know, we went on to do a lot of metabolic studies in the rats too, where we found that DKA, and especially during treatment with insulin and saline, that rats have, for example, lower levels of high-energy phosphates in the brain and have markers of what looks like ischemia in the brain, both before DKA is treated and um, even more so during treatment with insulin and saline. So more and more, our rat DKA model was starting to look a lot like a stroke model, you know, which strengthened our thinking as far as the cerebral hypoperfusion somehow being involved. Interesting. Now, you also did some studies regarding imaging. Were you imaging rats or were you imaging humans? Tell us about the role of imaging in moving this knowledge to the 2018 uh, study we will talk about. Yeah, Bob, I'll, I'll mention something about the uh, imaging studies that we did in children, and then Nicole can talk about imaging in rats. And one thing I will comment is that, you know, Nicole and I, you know, started down this path not thinking that we were going to find this. And we don't have like a, a pre-existing hypothesis at the start of our studies that we wanted to show everyone this is this is the etiology. But everything that we have done has always pointed in the same direction. So I will talk about some of the imaging studies we did in children with DKA. And this was an observational study, not in a randomized control fashion. But we took children acutely ill with DKA. Some of the scariest studies on, on humans that I have done, when they were ill with DKA, after initial resuscitation, we took them down to the MR scanner to do specialized MR imaging. And the initial imaging was called diffusion weighted imaging, where you're looking for where is fluid accumulating in the brain. And we did it early in DKA, three to four hours in, and then again, 12 hours later. And what we were finding was similar to what Nicole was finding in the rat lab, is that Early on in uh, DKA, it looked like we were seeing cytotoxic cell swelling, that is, swelling that you would anticipate from hypoperfusion, and that is marked by a what's called a low ADC, which is a diffusion co coefficient for water. And then later on, that, that cellular swelling disappears, and we were seeing what appeared like vasogenic edema with higher apparent diffusion coefficients. So those initial imaging studies in children were showing what the RAP model was showing, that what we were looking at what looked like hypoperfusion followed by a reperfusion injury. And then I'll turn over to Nicole yeah. to talk about the rats. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to add about as far as the, the human studies too, the other interesting thing we found that's been shown in a, a couple of other studies by people other than our group is that children 
with DKA actually routinely develop some cerebral edema. It's usually not associated with many or even any symptoms in terms of mental status changes, but we found that, you know, over half of children actually developed some brain swelling, uh, vasogenic cerebral edema that we could measure using MRI. So the other thing that, that those studies showed us was that cerebral edema in children with DKA isn't exactly, you know, or actually rare. What's rare is severe enough cerebral edema or cerebral injury to cause clinical symptoms. So that was, you know, help, helpful to see as well. And I think that, you know, the rat studies and the human studies were nicely parallel. You know, we really found the same things in our rat model as we did in children. And, you know, I'm going to add, uh, Bob, one of the also interesting findings that we uh, found in the human studies using a different type of MR protocol is we saw lactate accumulation in the brain, really suggesting, you know, again, brain acidosis, again, consistent with everything that we've showed for the last 20 years, as much as we would like, it's not that we would like to show one thing or the other, but fortunately, the message and the findings have been consistent from that first 2001 <laughs> retrospective case control study through the rat studies, through the other studies that we will be discussing. This is truly fascinating. Another thing you looked at, which we talk about now in febrile infants, sepsis, is inflammatory markers. Nicole, what did the inflammatory markers in either rat or human models show you about this cerebral edema slash brain injury model of CNS injury? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of data from various generally small but useful studies, you know, showing that DKA in humans, and we have the same data in, in rats as well, causes a hyperinflammatory state. So a systemic hyperinflammatory state. So we wondered, you know, in our rat model, considering that there's systemic inflammation at a high level, you know, is there also neuroinflammation? So some of our most recent studies actually in the rats have been looking at indicators of neuroinflammation, which we do see quite a lot of, you know, we see that there's, for example, activation of microglia in the brain, which are kind of like the resident immune cells in the brain. So They'll respond to injury or inflammation or infection, things like that. And we see that in DKA. We see that there is reactive astrogliosis in the brain too in, in DKA, also you know, generally like a classic brain neuroinflammatory response. And then our most recent studies, actually, we looked directly at levels of inflammatory mediators in the brain in DKA, which we measured just by you know, looking at brain tissue lysates. And we found that those are, are substantially elevated also during DKA. And the pattern of elevation is actually different from the pattern of elevation in systemic inflammatory mediators. So DKA causes you know, systemic inflammation, but it also causes a separate and specific neuroinflammatory response. And uh, I was going to add to that, Bob, that why that was sort of illuminating to us is that one of the things that we had struggled with before we started documenting these inflammatory markers is that can hypoperfusion in the setting of DKA and reperfusion injury, could that really be sufficient to give us brain injury like you might see in stroke? And, you know, we, we struggled with that. But 
in the setting of a very inflamed brain. And we have striking images of sections of the hippocampus of juvenile rats at different stages of DKA with just remarkable inflammation, but hypoperfusion in the setting of a very inflamed brain. Now that could be a setup for brain injury. And one other thing I was just going to comment on the rat studies is that one of the most striking findings to me is that if you look at the brain of adult rats who have experienced DKA as juveniles, still the inflammatory markers are still present, sort of indicating that there there's like a potentially smoldering inflammation that continues to adulthood in the in the rat model. That is, of course, we haven't been able to do that in the human model. Sure. Now, with years and years of research, like you said, Nicole and Nate in rats also in humans. I think now the time for a randomized trial was just begging. This is late 2015, 2017. Nate, I imagine your pediatric emergency medicine colleagues, Nicole, your endocrinology colleagues were eager to join this prospective study, which we're leading to. Did you have to fend them off or what? So yeah, Bob, this is, I'm, I'm going to start uh, with this story and then I'll turn it over to Nicole because it is a fascinating story. And I, I will not name any names or name any institutions, but here we are in PCARN, right? The Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network. When we started this study, PCARN had already been in existence for more than a dozen years and had already done big studies, big powerful studies. But now Nicole and I are approaching PCARN to say, hey, gang, we really have got to put like the lid on this topic of fluid in DKA. We need to do a randomized trial. And even in PCARN, this you know high-powered research network, people were really scared. They did not want to participate. We initially proposed a randomized trial with slower fluid than the slower arm that we published and faster fluid than the faster arm. But we could get no takers, maybe a couple of centers in PCARN because everybody was still, even in PCARN, adhering to what they were taught 30 years ago. And everyone was freaked out that if they give too much fluid, they're going to cause cerebral edema. So then what we did, we narrowed the arms a little bit. The slower arm became a little bit faster, the faster arm a little bit slower. And we got like four centers to agree. Still not enough to do the trial. And we said, Come on, guys. Look, we have now 15 years of data. You know, you have to believe this. And um, we got to do this trial. So what we did next is we made the slower arm a little bit faster and the faster arm a little bit slower. And voila, we got 13 centers. Mind you, there were 18 centers in PCARN at the time, but we got 13. And fortunately, 13 was enough to hit our sample size. And then I'll turn that next piece over to Nicole. Yeah, well, I yeah, oh. I mean, that's pretty much what <laughs> agree what happened. I, you know, I I have to say that I think the to the credit of the EM doctors that that they were a little bit more gung ho, you know, about joining because I think having seen it from the emergency department perspective, they were a little bit more skeptical about restricting fluids. The endocrinologists, I think, were actually more the the sticklers, and and um, since. The way we did the study, we had collaborators in the, well, obviously the emergency department, but also in endocrinology and in, in critical care, in the, in the pediatric critical care units. So we had to convince all three subspecialists at each site 
that this was a safe protocol and that they wanted to participate. And I think the critical care docs and the endocrinologists both were much more hesitant, having, you know, been kind of schooled in older theories for a really long time. So And I think one of the things that I think a very important observation, not only that just Nicole and I have made, but others have made, is that really and, and this number might even be higher, <laughs> but ten to twenty percent of children who experience DKA, and we'll call it cerebral edema, cerebral injury. Bob, you introduced that term, and we'll talk about it in this trial. But somewhere between 10 to 20% present to the emergency department already with that finding. So we emphasize that a bit to say that even if fluids have some small association, which we never have found, it certainly doesn't explain it all because of a sizable chunk of children with DKA and cerebral injury, cerebral edema, present that way. And that number is likely more than 20%. Nicole and I are in the middle of investigations about that now. And that, I think, helped convince people, along with the data that we had already published, that, yes, indeed, we really need to come to an answer about this. Excellent. So the prospective study, you alluded to, you had four different arms. Fast, but not too fast fluid administration, slow, but not too slow fluid administration, and then two types of fluids, normal saline and half normal saline. So what were the take-home points of this study? So there was a, a, a few really fundamental and important points that I want to make. Some are about DKA and some are about doing randomized trials. So you know, we randomized nearly 1,400 children. That's a really big number. And there was 350 in each arm. And to be perfectly clear, the bolus was always a normal saline in uh, all arms, but the rehydration fluid of the deficit, that's what was uh, randomized to half normal versus normal. But when you randomize 1,400 patients into four arms, guess what? You have groups that look almost identical. And in fact, importantly, if you look at the pH of the four groups, 7.16 in all four, you look at the ages, identical. The percent girls versus boys, identical. So the power of randomizing a big number is that you get groups that look similar. So you are adjusting for known confounders, but equally importantly, in a randomized trial, you're adjusting for unknown confounders when you do a big randomized trial. So having said that, we had a big randomized trial. Baseline, everyone looked the same. And our proxy for uh, cerebral injury, cerebral edema, was a drop in GCS below 14 that remained that way. And the reason we could use that surrogate is Nicole and I had published, you know, in this you know, slew of research we had done, we had done a study correlating uh, cerebral edema in children with GCS drops. And that really was critical to be able to use that proxy because there was no way feasibly, logistically, or financially that we could image every child in this study. So the GCS drops, we looked at uh, persistent GCS drops. And of course, we also looked at the big bad cerebral edema, that is the cerebral edema injury that requires intubation, uh, hyperosmolar therapy, or results in death. So important take-home points. First of all, that big bad cerebral edema, we replicated what has always been shown. 0.9% of children in this study had that. Some people say, oh, but there weren't sick children in this trial. That's completely wrong. About a quarter of the children in the study had pHs less than 7.1. 
what we had to exclude is children who already presented with cerebral edema. Of course, we couldn't enroll them because they already met the endpoint. So having said that, in the forearms, what we found was that there was no difference in GCS drops below 14 in the fast versus slow arms, although the trend was always towards worse outcomes, that is more GCS drops uh, in the slower arm. Of the big bad cerebral edema that requires intubation, death, hyperosmolar therapy, there was a total of 12 children that had that. Eight of them occurred in the slow arms, four in the fast arms. Again, statistically not different, but trending to favor fast fluids. And finally, the last point I'll make is that when you looked specifically at the subgroup of the sickest patients, that is, in the lowest 25th percentile of pH, in the highest 25th percentile of BUN or glucose or combined, we found these trends even more significant favoring fast fluid with p-values approaching 0.07, 0.08. Again, still not statistically significant, but in the sickest patients, the findings were even more towards fast fluid. So the take-home message to me was that, first of all, Fast fluids are not causing cerebral edema. And if anything, the trend is we are getting better outcomes in terms of uh, GCS scores uh, and mentation during DKA with faster fluid. Having said that, we're not, we didn't walk away from the study saying, oh, you know, this shows that you should give fast fluid. We walk away from the study saying, Fast fluid is not causing cerebral edema. So for goodness sakes, the sick child with DKA, treat them as you would treat any other sick, acidotic, dehydrated child. And of course, in the PZM world, that would be a bolus of 20 cc's per kilo uh, and then the appropriate rehydration. And for me, those were the big takeaways, but I'll pass it to Nicole for other points. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. I, I think the the question, like Nate pointed out, you know, the question that we get asked the most um, when we've presented this at conferences or among colleagues is that, well, you know, what about those sickest patients, though? You know, are how about them? You know, don't they they must need less fluid? And in fact, you know, I think that's the most important thing to emphasize is that we did do sub analyses on the very sickest of our group, and there, you know, the findings, if anything pointed towards perhaps faster fluid being beneficial. All right. Nate, the pediatric ER world, again, PCARN, 13 plus studies participating. Did they uh, change their practice now after this study was published? Yeah, that's a really good question. And Bob, before I'm going to answer, I want to just put in one comment, and Nicole has another comment that I forgot to throw in. And this is the joy and the curse of investigators. You look at the result of this quote unquote, you know, landmark study. And, you know, as a family, we have to say, I have to say that, you know, it's very fun. You know, Nicole is my best friend, my best collaborator. And we have these bookend New England Journal articles with Nicole as first author and me as last author 20 years ago. And now with me as first author and she as last author. And the irony, this is 20 years and millions of dollars later. And guess what we showed in this landmark study? It was the same thing as that New England Journal study (laughs) 20 years ago with just $10,000 retrospective case control, which highlights, I think, in another important epidemiological principle is that retrospective does not mean bad. 
retrospective studies conducted well with the rigor that is needed to do that can be quite good. And prospective studies, by definition, are not necessarily good. You do have the ability to control for more factors and whatnot, but you also have to do them well. But if you do both of them well, theoretically, you should show similar results. And that's what we did between 20 years ago and now. And then, Nicole, you were going to add something and then we'll answer your question, Bob. Yeah. Well, I was actually going to answer it. Oh. <laughs> so, but about okay, changing yeah, protocols. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sure. So, so we are now actually starting to see some changes in protocols. In fact, I think the British, we've had some, some conversations with endocrinologists and critical care people over in England. You know, the UK is modifying their protocols. And I know theirs were especially sort of restricted in, in the fluid infusion rates and things like that. And they're starting to liberalize their protocols. Over here, I get a lot of, and so does Nate, you know, emails and, and questions from people saying like, oh, you know, we, we'd like to start modifying our protocol. You know, what would you recommend about this or that? And and again, asking about specific subgroups, you know, what about the sicker patients? What about the, the less sick patients? You know, so um, we love to get those messages, you know, those emails and calls and things because, well, first, it means that the findings are being put to use, but it's it's nice to be able to have some input as people develop and change their protocols. And I want to give a, a shout out, Bob, to, as you, as you may know, at least as your listeners might not know, but there's really about five PCARN type networks globally. The Canadians have a very powerful network called PERC, and Australia, New Zealand called PREDICT, in Europe, there's one called REPEM. Uh, we have a global network called PERN. So we have, you know, a lot of sister networks. But specifically, there is a network in Canada called TREK, T-R-E-K-K. The founder is a good friend and colleague, Terry Klassen. Their goal, they're an implementation network. And we really appreciated what they were doing. They were following uh, Nicole and I on this trial. And they really want to, they always want to do the right thing. And they want to get the best evidence out to community EDs in Canada, because Canada is like the United States, where the vast majority of children are seen in community EDs. And they were following us uh, month to month. And I mean, the day after we published the study in New England, Trek Network, they pushed out the results to all of the general EDs in Canada to get the, the right evidence into the hands of clinicians right away. And that implementation piece is a piece that PCARN is now focusing on. We've always had this big evidence-generating wheel, but our wheel for implementation science has it's been weaker by necessity because you can't implement until you generate the evidence. But now we are really building that wheel of implementation. But the Trek network was really outstanding in pushing the evidence out to Canadian EDs. That, that's an excellent point, Nate, since as we, we have talked about, the majority of children are taken care of in the community and not at tertiary care children's hospitals. Well, I'm going to use the remaining time I have with you two DKA gurus to ask you some questions that some of our listeners have gotten in touch with me. Number one, any role for bicarb? I think there's only two circumstances that I would consider bicarbonate in children with DKA, and they're both extremely uncommon. One is the child that is just worsening and they are going to die in front of you unless you do everything. And of course, bicarb is part of the kitchen sink for an extremely acidotic child who is otherwise going to die. So that's the extreme example. 
And that's obviously very uncommon. And the other uncommon scenario in which I would give bicarbonate, it's the child with hyperkalemia, which we know can happen in DKA, but with symptomatic hyperkalemia with EKG changes, we know that bicarb is part of the pharmacotherapy for symptomatic hyperkalemia. But those are the only two circumstances that I can think of, and they're both extremely uncommon. Yeah, I agree. You know, those exceedingly uncommon, I would say. Yeah. Excellent. In the trial, half normal saline and normal saline. We did a podcast a few months ago on sepsis. There's actually a current fluid trial going on uh, comparing those fluids with lactated ringers. Concern about hyperchloremic acidosis from sodium chloride. Any trials going on or taking a look at lactated ringers, even for the for the bolus or even for maintenance fluids. Yeah. So Bob, let me first comment, and then I'll turn it over to Nicole to talk about the half normal normal in the study. So Bob, I guess you don't know this, but I'm the senior investigator of that study with uh, Fran Balamuth and Scott Weiss of the Prompt Bolus study. And again, for your viewers, this is a it's the biggest randomized trial in the history of pediatric emergency care involving 9,000 children with early sepsis in three of these networks, PCARN, PREDICT, and PERC that I mentioned to look at normal saline versus, versus balanced solution, lactated ringers, but that's for sepsis. So I know a lot about that trial because, as I mentioned, I'm the senior investigator. And had this been, we started the trial now instead of seven years ago, we would likely have included a lactated ringer's arm. Unfortunately, we didn't. And I'll let Nicole talk about the half normal versus normal saline. But one comment I can tell you is that we are not going to do that trial. That's going to need some junior investigators to spend the next six years of their careers to do that trial. But Nicole, you want to comment on half normal versus normal saline? Yeah. So, well, as you might expect, you know, we saw a more a higher frequency of hyperchloremic acidosis in the normal saline arm, as you might predict. But on, you know, on the other hand, hyperchloremic acidosis is really a benign condition and resolves over, you know, over time on its own. So probably not, you know, super concerning. We did find also that if you're monitoring sodium trends, you know, the expected trend as the glucose level falls in DKA is that for the sodium to rise because you're losing that you know dilutional effect of hyperglycemia and that sort of rise in sodium also as you might expect was greater if you used normal saline than if you used half normal saline although interestingly the rate of infusion really didn't have any effect or the only the most minimal effect on uh, sodium changes so you know we did see those things and i think for patients where for some reason the therapy really needs to be individualized. Maybe they're having a very substantial drop in sodium or something like that, that, that for whatever reason you want to uh, change, then you know that data is helpful um, as far as pointing to whether you want to change the, the sodium content of the fluid. I'll add that the hyperchloremic acidosis that we saw, it did not result in longer hospital stays. That is, the, the hospital stays were essentially identical in all four arms of the trial. And there was one arm, and Nicole, you'll have to help me remind me, I think it was the slow arm with half normal saline rehydration that actually had some indication of better memory outcome in terms of the recall, uh, memory recall test. Remember, it was, it had a P-value of like 0.06. Remember, for there was a half normal uh, yeah, saline arm. Yeah, I think arm. that's 
half normal saline is yeah. fast, 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 yeah. fast, fast, yeah, fast infusion of fast, half normal saline. Of half, yeah. half, nor- of half mm-hmm. normal saline uh, was an arm where there was a suggestion of better mentation during DKA, but but we wouldn't extrapolate that to say that half normal saline is the better uh, solution. So I think the takeaway for that is the bolus, as always, is with normal saline until actually someone proves that maybe lactated ringers is better. But then the rehydration fluid, probably both are fine, either half normal or normal saline. Our The data in our big trial did not suggest that one was significantly better than the other. Yeah, I agree. Great. Very reassuring. I think I want to end with you two experts how I began. I said that cerebral edema or brain injury more common in pediatrics than adults. So talk to us in the 2018 study, is the 16-year-old's brain similar to an eight-month-old's brain? And again, looking closely at the study, I believe only 12% of the patients in that study were less than the age of six. So my question, again, I, I have the two experts, I, I want to hear Share with us the strength of that study and how translatable is it to the bedside when we're caring for a young child? Well, you know, in the study, we did look to some extent at different age groups also. And I think the findings and pretty much everything we've done with the study data from that study, when you subdivide according to age groups or stratify according to age groups, we get the same findings. So... I think, yeah, you know, as far as when do you kind of make the cutoff as far as the person's brain being sufficiently adult to be at at less risk, I don't really know the answer to that question. But at least among the ages included in our study, the findings seem to hold pretty well, no matter what age they were. And, and Bob, with maybe a couple of provocative uh, statements, first of all, this trial to get this number of patients, 1,400 in PCARN, it really took us a decade. That's how long it took to plan the trial, to get funded, to enroll, to analyze, and to publish. And you can always take a study and say, well, what about in this small cell of patients? No one will be able to answer that perfectly because to do that with precision would take three planets over three decades to get enough patients. But as Nicole mentioned, the trend was the same no matter how we broke it down. But of course, the p-values could never reach significance as you divide and subdivide. And my most provocative thing I'm going to throw out there, just because it's a podcast and you want the fun of this, when people ask us, why do you see this in children but not in adults? And I'm just going to speculate, because this is fun, two possibilities. One is that there is something inherently different in the brains of children. The metabolism and the way fluids are handled and managed in children are somehow different than in adults. That's one possible explanation. Although, you know what? The brain is a really sophisticated organ and giving a little bit extra fluid bolus, we have now shown that that doesn't cause cerebral edema. The brain is more sophisticated than that. But the second provocative thing I will say, in adults, we always tend to criticize the general emergency physician. And to be clear, I'm a pediatric emergency physician, but we always criticize the general emergency physician for giving too much fluid. Well, you know what? In the adult patient with DKA, maybe the fact that they're giving a lot of fluid is protecting the brain of adults with DKA. And we have been 
scared by for 30 years to give that fluid. And maybe we've been doing a generation of harm to children with DKA. And I'll kind of stop there with my provocative statements. What a fascinating finish. Nicole, Nate, on behalf of the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast team, I want to thank you both. Let me just end by asking, what are the two of you collaborating on now? Professionally speaking, I'm so I'm talking. I know your husband and wife, but professionally speaking, what are the next steps for uh, Nate Cooperman and Nicole Glazer? So it's funny you should ask, and we're going to put in a, a plug out there for whoever's the NIH reviewers because we're not we're not done yet. You know, it wasn't enough for us to say it's not fluid. What we do want to tell the listeners is let's stop obsessing about fluid because you know what? It's not about fluid. It's about something else. And we've been really, we think, misdirected and we spent millions of dollars and years to show that. And again, as Nicole has described in, in some of the great studies she's been doing with collaborators in the rat lab, it's about hypoperfusion and inflammation. So we are uh, submitting a, a grant to the NIH to look specifically at those factors. Inflammation, hypoperfusion, we're collaborating actually with folks at CHOP and other uh, other institutions, smaller study, because now it's time to do discovery again. We've done the fluid thing. We now wanna uncover what it is. Before we retire, for goodness sakes, we wanna figure out what is really causing this. And so we have an NIH grant going in hopefully in February to do more discovery. I wish you success on that. And with that, again, I want to thank both of you. Look forward to having both of you back on the podcast, maybe when we get some results from that study. Again, thank you both. Hey, thanks a lot, Bob. It's thanks been a lot so of much. fun. It's been yeah. fun.